One of the things on a Saturday night, the first after the first full day, is there's a way in which we really get the um, all the weather systems, the impermanence of how they so much moves through, and probably the deepest. Dharma truth gets kind of clear right away, which is that um, what makes a difference is how we're relating to what's happening. Do you notice that some? Different experiences and was there space? I mean, how much do we proliferate into a something's wrong sense? So we're going to explore that a little tonight. I'd like to kind of just begin by saying that um, it becomes clearer and clearer as we go deeper in practice that that meditation really is a path of coming home. It's not a improving or getting somewhere. The moments of freedom are moments that we've, um, what the Zen teachers call, take that backward step, a kind of a relaxing back to inhabit really what we are. And as I mentioned last night, and you know, I love that story of the diamond in your pocket because it's so obvious and we know it cognitively and it's the thing we most forget. That um, this truth and beauty and awakeness and joy and freedom's right here, right here. So this is... Um, This is Rumi, who, I'll just read a few verses. He says, We meet at this appointed time, but the texts say, Lovers pray constantly. Once a day, once a week, five times an hour, that's not enough. Fish, like we are, need the ocean around us. Do you pay regular visits to yourself? Do you pay regular visits to yourself? Don't argue or answer rationally. Let us die, and in dying, reply. So what does he mean by saying, let us die? You know, in, in some way, we intuit that this homecoming is a process of releasing resistance, that what keeps us trapped in our selfness and the idea of separation is, are all the ways that we are trying to resist and manage and manipulate our experience. And there's some process of dying, of releasing all that doing and controlling and manipulating that actually lets us relax back into this wholeness, into presence. Maybe a a title for tonight really is Homecoming to the Awakened Heart because when we really stop resisting, um, there's a freedom that's right there in the heart. And an image that I find really useful is um, that our lives are habituated. It's like we're in this cocoon and we keep our life as safe as we can. We're all trying to be safe, and we're trying to be comfortable. And we move around a lot to stay comfortable, and we keep generating the same kind of thoughts of trying to figure out and plan and worry and so on to stay comfortable and cozy and secure. And yet it's stale, and there's not much ventilation. And there's an ache in us because we sense something true is possible that we're kind of holding back from. So we're in this identification, this cocoon of this small self. And the way that we keep ourselves in it, all the ways that we numb, that we kind of cut off, all the ways that we control, all the ways that we hold on. There's a picture of a man and a woman sitting in a living room. And he's saying, well, you know, if I ever get in a vegetative state, you know, dependent on a machine please, pull the plug. At which point she goes to the TV set and <laughs> pulls it out. And I like that because, you know, that's the cocoon we're in. We're in a co- Have you noticed what a cocoon we get in around the web, around email? It's like we, we just stay in this world and it's, um, 
And in a way, we're cut off from the aliveness of the present moment. And because we're going after safety, we're constantly trying to plan and figure out how to, how to prevent things from going wrong. In one story, there's, this is uh, the Colorado State Department of Fish and Wildlife advised hikers, hunters, fishers, and golfers to take extra precautions in keeping alert for bears while in Breckenridge and Keystone areas. They advised people to wear noise-producing devices, such as little bells on their clothing, to alert but not startle the bears unexpectedly. They also advise the carrying of pepper spray in case of an encounter with a bear. It's also a good idea to watch for fresh signs of bear activity. People should recognize the difference between black bear and grizzly bear droppings. Black bear droppings are smaller and contain berries and possible squirrel fur. Grizzly bear droppings have little bells in them and smell like pepper spray. (laughs) So our endless... Efforts to control. <laughs> so, so the path of awakening really is beginning to recognize our routines. Like every one of us has our routine. We control by staying busy, and we control by trying to improve ourselves, and, and so on. And to begin to pause in those routines, to pause, and in that pausing and seeing them, there's a bit of a releasing and an opening. But it takes courage. So there's a beautiful teaching story I want to share with you tonight that really has to do with this kind of waking up out of the cocoon of small self and how it's a death. You know, of course, that's why we resist it, because we have to release this whole familiar uh, dream self that we're very identified with, and it takes a lot of courage. And yet each of us, the deepest longing is to wake up to that wholeness. So this is a, um, an, a story on this. And if you like the story, you can find it in After the Ecstasy by Jack Cornfield. So this is a, about a young man named Nachiketa, and it takes place in India. And after the death of several friends, Nachiketa felt the brevity of life, and he saw a shallowness that comes from worldly pursuits. Um, and the son, when they're divorced from spiritual understanding, and he was the son of a rich merchant and knew that the heart's happiness did not come from the amount of property we own. So he had a very strong reaction when his father was encouraged by the Brahmin priests of the community to make a grand donation to the temple in order to ensure himself a good rebirth in the afterlife. He was appalled by the idea that virtue and merit could be purchased. When the day arrived and his father said, I give my cattle, my gold, all of value to the priests of the temple, And then Nachiketa said, all you value? Ha, what about me, your son? And because his father was publicly shamed, he responded angrily, I give you as well. I give you to death. So Nachiketa's eyes blazed, and he replied, I accept, and he left. Nachiketa went to a remote spot in the deepest forest and sat, waiting for death to show himself. For three days and three nights, he sat there intent and motionless, determined to track down the white ox and look into its eyes, determined to face death. Sitting through hunger, pain, and exhaustion, he came at last to the land of Yama, the king of death, also known as the keeper of accounts. There he was greeted by death's three assistants, pestilence, famine, and war, who explained that Lord Yama was away. He's out collecting rent. That's fine, said Nachiketa. I'll wait. When death returned three days later, his assistants told him that this most unusual young man who had come seeking him, they told him about him. And, and usually humans who hear of Lord Death run the other way. So Lord Yama was interested to meet Nachiketa and welcomed him. I see you're a man intent on his journey. I'm sorry I have kept you waiting. I'll make up for the three days you waited by offering a boon. You may choose three blessings for your journey. During the time of journeying and waiting, Nachiketa had entered the space between the worlds where truth is revealed, and now three blessings were offered. In this luminous state of mind, he recognized what he most needed to go on. So listen, this is, these are the blessings most needed to unfold and awaken. The first boon Nachiketa requested was forgiveness for himself and all that he had touched. Let my father look upon me with the same joy as the day I was born. 
Nachiketa knew that only by releasing these stories, his past, by reconciling with all that was incomplete in his heart, could he continue his journey. So Lord Yama granted this, and by granting forgiveness, he actually offered a reunion with life, and Nachiketa's heart was open and clear. So Lord Yama looked at him directly and noted, your first boon was a wise one, Nachiketa. Now what will be your second? Speak. After a moment's silent reflection, Nachiketa spoke. I asked the blessing of inner fire. Okay, so this is the second blessing. Nachiketa knew that to succeed on the spiritual journey, he would need both the ardor and courage to follow a path with his whole being. So Nachiketa asked for the strength to give himself fully to his quest. Inner fire is wholehearted energy, spiritual passion, an aliveness of being, a dedication to presence. Lord Yama honored Nachiketa's wisdom and blessed him with this inner fire. So free from the restrictions of old conflict and filled now with this limitless energy and devotion, Nachiketa found much of what was necessary to pass through his initiation. And then the Lord of Death asked him to name his final boon. After reflecting, Nachiketa looked at death and said, I ask for that which is immortal. With some surprise, death reminded this audacious young man that he had come to the last boon and that he could choose anything. Lord Yama then conjured up visions of what Nachiketa might choose instead, a harem of beautiful maidens to travel with him on his journey, a royal golden war chariot with the world's fastest steeds, a palace where Nachiketa would be king. Nachiketa viewed all of these and more. Why not choose amongst these, death urged again. But Nachiketa was a determined youth, not easily led astray. So he said, um, this is what I want. I asked to know that which is immortal. And at this, Lord Yama said, I will grant your third boon. And he handed Nachiketa a simple yet extraordinary gift, a mirror. If you wish to find the secret of immortality, Nachiketa, I cannot help you more than this. You yourself must look directly into yourself. Then you must repeatedly ask yourself the greatest of all human questions. Who am I? Look beyond your body and thoughts, Nachiketa. In this way you will find what you seek. Whether it is enacted in initiation or meditation, all beings face Lord Yama. We must ask who it is that is born and dies. As Nachiketa gazed into the sacred mirror, he entered into the profound spiritual questioning that leads to the deathless. When everything he held was released and stripped away, a pure and timeless heart arose. Nachiketa was free. So what I thought we could do is just reflect on each of those three uh, gifts that really are what serve us to free these hearts. And just to say that Nachiketa's journey began with disillusionment. And in a way, that's the truth for all of us, that we in, we're in the cocoon and something happens always because life keeps on changing and losses are inevitable. And whether it's the a diagnosis of a malignancy or a betrayal from someone we trusted or a relationship that falls apart. Whatever it is that happens that in some way what we're holding tight to shakes. In some way our sense of life, there's a disillusionment. And then there's kind of a crossroads. And either we get tighter in the cocoon, hold tighter to things, get more bitter. In other words, become consolidated around the betrayed, defeated, failed self. Or we call on a quality of presence that allows us to open to something larger, that allows us to begin to remember really who we are. And so you might just consider for yourself the circumstances in your life. And we each know how this happens when we really hit a wall and how in some way those are the times that we 
touch into the resources that are deeper and the sense of beingness that's larger. One person wrote, This life is a test. It is only a test. If it were a real life, then you would have been told and you would have been given more specific information about where to go and what to do. (laughs) So the truth is there is no operating manual and we're kind of forced to open into the unknown. So at these times, at these times where the grounds are quaking and in some way, because we want freedom, we open to presence, we're willing to stay. And by the way, the word courage doesn't have to do with a lack of fear. It has to do with this willingness to stay with what's difficult. Those are the times that we're facing Lord Yama, the, the, the mysterious, the unpredictable, the change, the loss. Now, those are the times that we can't play our old strategies. So then in that presence we need these gifts, these spiritual gifts, these boons that Nachi Keita asked for. And the first of the boons, forgiveness. And you've heard here me speak of that second arrow, how when things are difficult we tend to lock ourselves into the small self-sense by either blaming ourselves or blaming others. In a way, forgiveness is letting go of the story of blame so we can actually be with what's here. You have to say, what is forgiveness? It's releasing that armoring that's holding off a sense of our own inner life or another person. And of course, it's not easy because the very nature of when we're wounded, we don't want to feel that vulnerability. So we lock into those stories. And yet, there is no way to move forward on the spiritual path and and forgive the language of progression, but there's no way to come home in a way if we're believing our stories of you're wrong or I'm wrong. It's really, and, and so many in the groups mentioned this today, it's like that's where we get trapped. It's not that there's physical pain, it's not that there's a sense of fear, there's not that there's grief, it's the sense that something's wrong with me because of this. This reflects badly on me. I'm not okay. Or it's your fault. Either way, we have, we're contro- using blame to control and not touch what's here. And I can say for myself that a few years ago, I took on a, a very specific practice on the path of um, noticing whenever there was blame. And it could be even the slightest kind of, you know, slight put-down of another person. But in some way, this kind of um, either being one-upmanship or putting myself down, I just decided that that was going to be a key filter for, or a flag for me. And that each time I would practice rain with blame. And it's really been amazing. And so, in a way, I feel like that's the gift of that first boon is that as long as we're hanging out in the stories of you're wrong or I'm wrong, we can't begin to really heal where the, where the suffering is. And we know how quickly in our close-in relationships, especially where there's a lot of uh, attachment, a lot of uh, where somebody matters, how quickly we can... Um, because we have so much wounding in our bodies, feel re-injured and and the blame just flares up. From the New Yorker, couple arguing, well, the Dalai Lama never had to put up with your whining. (laughs) And then another cartoon, um, because, you know, forgiveness does not mean to indulge. Forgiving doesn't mean, oh, I forgive you, walk all over me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, It's not permission to behave in ways that are harmful. So, in the second cartoon, two doctors are lying beside a dying man's bed, and one's saying to the dying man, So, could we have all your stuff after you die? And the subheading is, Doctors Without Boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) So, I actually am bringing that in, because forgiving doesn't mean we erase all boundaries. Forgiving doesn't mean we condone In fact, you can forgive somebody. And when I say forgive, release that story of badness. 
You can forgive someone. Forgiving means not pushing anyone, including any part of ourself, out of our hearts. And absolutely commit to never, ever letting that harm happen again. Forgiving and activism go hand in hand. In fact, true spiritual activism, you know, whether it's the the Mahatma Gandhis or the Nelson Mandela's, you know, true spiritual activism comes from a heart that's incredibly forgiving. I I was reading a story about Nelson Mandela, how he had been in solitary confinement for 12 years and um, went into a depression. You know, big surprise that someone would go into depression after 12 years of solitary confinement. And so he started asking, sensing, well, what's this about? And he realized that he, he felt afraid that he'd never again uh, have love in his life. That was his depression. So he said to himself, well, who can I love? Ask that question. And he, his answer, my jailer. So he then committed himself to loving the man that had been torturing him and humiliating him and, you know, basically um, violating him. And in two months, they had to replace that jailer because he could no longer torture Mandela. So the new guy comes in, and the same thing happens again. He loves the guy into not, you know... And it happened over and over again. And as it turned out, it is in his inauguration, this was really stunning, he, um, his first jailer was uh, an honored guest at his inauguration. He's president of South Africa. The media all around the world covered it. So I guess I, I'm bringing that in to say that um, you can be a total activist and yet have the courage to say, I'm not going to be in the stories of blame. I'm going to open to the vulnerability that is here. Um, And the truth is that if we stay in our stories of you're wrong or I'm wrong, we're not seeing the truth of what is. We can't see the truth of who else is there. We've just fixated on a narrow fragment of what they are. And we become small. We forget the vastness of who we are, both. Our failure to know joy is directly related to our inability to forgive. That's Charlotte Joko Beck, Zen teacher. And we know it. I mean, when we're blaming, are we in a good mood? Do we feel good about ourselves? Not really. Maybe temporarily. There's a reason blame and anger are so addictive, because we get a temporary surge of, I'm better, I'm okay, but it doesn't last long. So there's a process of forgiving, and I'll just to give you a sense of it, um, one student of mine, his wife, left him, and at first he blamed her, and you know, because she had broken her promise and betrayed his trust. And, and so when he was with his teenage girls after the breakup, you know, on some level he wanted them to join him in blaming her. And so it was, it was one of those really sad splittings where you know, there was more and more um, pain and hostility. And he was miserable. And then he turned on himself and blamed himself. I'm unworthy. I deserve for her to have left me. You know, I'm wrong. So he flipped from her to himself. And so we did this work with blame that I'm describing to you, this, this boon that Lord Yama offered of how to release, and where he just started putting aside the story of I'm wrong and feeling what was underneath. And what he felt initially was this sense of failure, and powerlessness, and then this huge grief, just this huge grief, and he came down to the pain of separation. He felt just, it was just that core angst of separation. And when he could open to that, he would have never gotten to that if he had been blaming. When he could open to that, then there was a tenderness, then compassion, the kind of flavor and sense of compassion began to fill his being. So this is the shift that happens in this first boon in terms of spiritual awakening, that our identity that's hooked on a right self or a wrong self begins to get freed up when we let go of blame. And I'll tell you one more vignette to do with blame because I think it's so key to everything else in waking up the heart. And this is, um, I heard about this African tribe, the Ku in Matobu, 
and they have this really wise understanding of um, what happens when we get caught in blame. And they have a ritual they call the drowning man trial. If someone's murdered after a year of mourning, the family goes to the edge of a river. The killer's taken out in a boat, bound so he can't swim, and then dropped into deep water. The family of the dead then has to make a choice. They can either let him drown, or they can swim out and save him. The coup believe that if the family lets the killer drown, if they seek revenge, they'll have justice but never heal the wound of loss. But if they save him, if they admit that life isn't always just, in other words, if they accept the reality of loss, that very act can begin to heal their sorrow. As the coup put it, vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Vengeance is a lazy form of grief, and it's a lazy form of fear. It's a lazy form of it's some way trying to control and not feel the vulnerability that's here. So maybe just to pause a moment, and we can walk through these boons ourselves, just to sense, you might close your eyes, and just sense, even in a few moments, if there's a natural place in your life where you're pushing someone out of your heart. And know that the beginning of forgiveness, what opens the door, is simply the intention. If just as you're reflecting tonight, there's that sincerity of intention. Okay, I don't really want to push this being out of my heart. It just hurts and it's really the way I've been trying to protect myself. But just to sense where there might be distance from someone and where you might begin to explore this freedom. This freedom of sensing the pushing away, sensing the story of blame, sensing what's underneath the story. If you weren't in some way telling the story of how this person's wrong, what would you have to feel? And what would it be like if you just let yourself for a moment just be present with, recognize and allow this vulnerability right here with kindness. Don't bother trying to forgive someone else, just with kindness towards just the hurt. So there's no buffer of a story, there's just presence with vulnerability. And in that kindness, that presence towards the vulnerability that's here, you might begin to sense the space and possibility to hold with kindness the humanity of the other person. To have that intention, that sense of sensing their hurt, knowing that anyone that causes suffering is suffering. So there's a kind of surrendering of our story that is expressed in this first boon. Again, Rumi, he says, be ground, be crumbled, so wildflowers will come up where you are. You've been stony for too many years. Try something different. Surrender. Okay, so that's the first part, and it's an important part, and if all we got to is that piece, that first gift from Lord Yama of, of having this courage to let go of our stories that keep us separate, because when we surrender those stories, the wildflowers, the heart can begin to bloom. The second boon, I love the language of inner fire, 
the gift of inner fire. We already have inner fire. We already have this aliveness and passion about waking up, but we do a lot to subdue it, to dampen it, to turn away from it, to be distracted from it. This is Robert Frost. He said, something we were withholding made us weak until we found it was ourselves. So there's a way we hold back. And we were taught to. I mean, some of our earliest lessons when we're young are, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't express this, don't express that. We're kind of dampened down. And so it's not just the bad behavior, so to speak. It's just our aliveness gets subdued. John O'Donohue says, sometimes, you know, if we look back at ourselves as children, we can ask, whatever happened to our wildness? Well, the passion, that inner fire comes from that, that spontaneous, that love for being awake and alive. So we, this, this inner fire is what lets us give ourselves to waking up. It's that, that place in us that says, I want to be awake and free more than I want anything in the world. You know, it's like I want to be free more than I want to be right. I want to be free more than I want to be safe. And that doesn't mean that we're foolhardy. Somebody sent me this one. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving isn't for you, (laughs) you know. So it's not one of these, like, go out and be wild and crazy in in a stupid way. I think the essence of inner fire is a bit... I was talking about last night, which is getting in touch with sincerity. And you can feel it in people. When you're with someone that's sincere, there's an aliveness that's very contagious. So it becomes important for this second boon of inner fire to become familiar with the ways that we hold back, just to get to know how is it that I hold back my inner fire. And part of it is that we buy into a story of limitation. We have an idea of ourselves on the spiritual path. And the idea is I'm this kind of person with these kind of weaknesses and these kind of strengths and it's going to take this long and I need to do this much more and I'm not there yet. So we have these stories. And we have stories, I might sometimes call it the upper limits, um, that it's not okay to be happy. You know, it's like as soon as we get happy, we get suspicious, like something's going to go wrong because I shouldn't, you know, it's like we don't deserve it or something. So one of the ways we hold back are, and just to begin to look at our stories of, and they're usually implanted from parents that didn't have very many expectations for us or had too many expectations for us, can go either way, but in some way didn't recognize the who we were, the light, the shiningness, the love, and really mirror that. So the stories. And then, of course, we have all the ways we numb ourselves, and we know those, the consuming, the over-consuming. This culture is designed to numb out, to um, water down, to dilute the inner fire. It just is with the entertainment and the consuming we do. Um, I mentioned controlling. The more that we um, try to control our way through life, including controlling other people, the less we touch that alive sincerity. And that's our, one of our main false refuges, is trying to manage other people. We do it a lot. And you'll notice the more you're trying to manage another person, the more disconnected you are from that inner fire. Another story. An old man in Phoenix calls his son in New York and says, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. Forty-five years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you talking about, the son screams. We can't stand the sight of each other any longer, the old man said. We're sick and tired of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this, so you call your sister in Chicago and tell her. Hangs up. Frantic, the son calls his sister who explodes on the phone. Like, heck, they're getting a divorce, she shouts. I'll take care of this. She calls Phoenix immediately and screams at the old man, you're not getting a divorce. Don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back, and we'll both be there tomorrow. Until then, don't you do a thing. Do you hear me? And she hangs up. The old man hangs up the phone and turns to his wife. Okay, he says, they're coming to Thanksgiving, and they're paying their own way. (laughs) 
so. We're more or less clever in our strategies, but... <laughs> I think one of the big ways that we, um, that we kind of push away or dissociate from the inner fires that we don't take risks, that we really play it safe because we want to look good to ourselves in the world, and that stops us. Um, but let me, rather than me listing more ways, just take a moment again just to bring this real for you. Just check in. Um, just sense in your own life. The reflection really is, how do I hold back? It may be, how do I hold back from loving the ones who are close to me? Or for some of you, how do I hold back from expressing my creativity? What's holding me back? Maybe how do I hold back from realizing the fullness of my spiritual life, from realizing really what I am? The beginning of the gift of this second boon of the inner fire is just to realize how we hold ourselves back. Because in seeing it, we begin to loosen that identification. Another way to begin to wake up that inner fire is just a simple reflection of what do I love, what do I care about? the more moments that you actually directly remember what you care about, the more moments that that fire begins to flame true and strong. Rumi says this, he says, gamble everything for love. If you're a true human being, half-heartedness doesn't reach into majesty. Gamble everything for love. If you're a true human being, Half-heartedness doesn't reach into majesty. You set out to find God, but then you keep stopping for long periods at mean-spirited roadhouses. (laughs) I just thought that was a kind of neat ending. (laughs) Mean-spirited roadhouses. So we reflect on what stops us, we can ask the question, what would it mean in this moment to not hold back? What would it mean just in this moment to not hold back from presence, from fullness? The inner fire is really that energy of presence itself. It's that that wholehearted presence that is what we are. Another language for it is devotion. It's just like not holding back is to give fully. It's to let go of that smallness and give ourselves like a river releasing itself into the ocean. This is Relka. He says, you see, I want a lot. Perhaps I want everything. The darkness that comes with every infinite fall and the shivering blaze of every step up. You have not grown old, and it is not too late to dive into your increasing depths where life calmly gives out its own secret. You see, I want a lot. So with the inner fire, you know, we worry about wanting. It's actually the problem's not that we have too much wanting, it's that we don't have enough. We don't really inhabit the longing. And if we really inhabit longing, we can trace it back to its source in belonging. The inner fire carries us back to the source. So, this is a second boon. And um, if you want a simple way to walk away with it, with the first two boons, the first boon is to just not believe the stories of blame and keep opening to the vulnerability that's here. 
a forgiving heart. And the second boon is to remember what you love. And that will energize you on your path. That sincerity will carry you home. But as we know, there's a third boon too. So So this third boon, the the mirror, is um, really looking into our own being and seeing that which is timeless. And, and yet, as we know with meditation, it doesn't always seem that way. When we first stop and pause and look inward, um, we can see it's just a lot of busyness and this incessant inner dialogue and the churning emotions or confusion or fuzziness. Or um, They had a sign here at IMS some years ago um, that said, Lily Tomlin, I always knew I wanted to be somebody, but I guess I should have been more specific. And then I then they also had one self knowledge is not necessarily good news, you know. Anyway, Zen Master Dogen, I'll read you from him. He says The human mind has absolute freedom as its true nature. There are thousands upon thousands of students who have practiced meditation and obtained this realization. Do not doubt the possibilities because of the simplicity of the method. If you can't find the truth where you are, where do you expect to find it? So really, this is where we call this practice one of homecoming, that we really, we pay attention to the objects of what are happening, to the the sadness or the sound in the trees, we pay attention to the scent of the flowers and we pay attention to the sensations of the breath. And we hold a mirror up to look and see the awareness itself. To really ask that question, who is peering out or what is peering out of these eyes? And what is listening? What is aware? So these are the questions, and yet there's a lot that stops us. We have this habit of fixating outward, and there's a kind of um, sense that, well, we'll get come back to this basic question of who's here later, but for right now, um, we just spend our time fixating on thoughts and on what's out there. So meditation is actually training to begin to see the fixation, to relax the grip which is exactly what the Buddha did under the Bodhi tree. You know, and he basically looked into his own awareness and discovered the radiance of Buddha nature. Do you make regular visits to yourself? So what we find is that what we love, whether we call it the Buddha or Jesus or Great Spirit, what we love, what we love in another person, is really the essence of what we are. What we love is loving presence. You know, we think that the love is out there, but everything we intuit that's out there is actually what we are. We can't intuit love unless that is what we're made of. And when we're seeing something beautiful, we think it's out there, but it's really this appreciation of the beauty that's what we are. Somebody says something wise and it resonates, but it's our own wisdom that's resonating. And so I'm I'm kind of spending a little time with this because it's where we started last night, that there's such a tendency to think that what we long for is outside us. Now, it's not inside us as just this being, but not other beings. But it's not like we're being present with something. It's like what presence is, is what we are. It's not like we have to try to love something. It's what the love is, is our nature. So there's a sense that what we long for, and the way it's framed, the way Ajashanti one teacher's had a big influence on me, frames it as, says, isn't it true that everything you long for is already here? Let's just take a moment to reflect. We'll just practice this a little.
for this final boon, this mirror, is just looking into awareness itself. And, and it really, it can be a confusing one if the mind is very busy. And it becomes a revealing and beautiful part of awakening when we start quieting and just being in the senses. So just to invite you now to come home into your senses. Listening. Listening and feeling the sensations in the body. Utterly awake, senses wide open. You might gently ask, who or what is aware? What's listening? You just gently look in the mirror, look back into awareness. And then relax into what is experienced. Be the presence. Be the silence that's listening. The awake space that's receiving these life sensations. The Tibetans say that this empty, awake heart is closer than we can imagine. They say that it's easier to experience than we imagine. It's a backward step, just resting backwards in what is. But it's more profound beyond any story or idea and more wondrous that what we seek is what we are. This is the third boon, the mirror. The poet David White puts it in these terms in his poem to Locho Lake. He says, In this high place, it is as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface, say the old prayer of rough love, and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There, in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. When you'd like to open your eyes, and I'll just tell you the end of the Nachiketa story, and we'll close. So at the end of the story, we see a young man bowing to Lord Yama, final time, totally at peace. Then, as if by magic, the landscape of the kingdom of death changes to the spring rice fields of his native India. In this last, in this at last secret is revealed to him, death and birth are not separate. Renewal comes by dying. When we have faced death and aloneness, 
we are unafraid to live, and life flowers under our feet. Everywhere we go becomes holy ground. Nachiketa knew this in his heart and walked off toward his home to embrace his father and start a new life. So just taking the last moment, again, let your attention go inward. To let go of any stories of wrongness. Sri Narsargadatta says, upon realization, we can't say exactly what happens. All we know is that nothing is wrong with me any longer. This is the first boon a forgiving heart. To feel the sincerity of your longing, this willingness to be present. And then to look into the mirror and sense who is willing, who is present. And become that loving presence. Recognize it as the very source of what you are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.